My name's Anthony. I'm the pastor here at Valley Hope. Before I forget, I was supposed to uh, make you aware or remind you, maybe you, maybe you knew this already. Um, during Advent, um, one of our members, Jacqueline, um, she, she's an artist. She made coloring sheets for our older kids who are here in the service with us. She's kept on doing that. Um, so she's, she's making them. She has them for First Samuel. And um, I hear there's a maze this, this week. So that's a big deal, apparently, right? Yes, OK. I said that that was amazing. And that really didn't get a good enough laugh um, from Becky. Um, like, I'm here for the dad jokes, OK? I'm, I'm a dad. I'm fully qualified to make these kind of jokes. I'm glad you all could be here uh, this week. Um, you never know, in Buncombe County, you know, two inches of snow can cut, shut things down for a month. So thank you for braving this perilous weather this morning. Um, we will hope that the schools will be able to open tomorrow unless somebody sees a small patch of ice and they'll shut everything down. I'm not bitter much. Um, okay, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 4. We're, uh, we're in our, our third week in this series on First and Second Samuel, and uh, the, the story has taken us one direction, and now it's going to kind of yank us in another direction. This is not a mistake. Uh, whoever wrote First and Second Samuel is a bit of a, a literary mastermind. So uh, we've gotten to be introduced to Samuel. Last week, we saw his call. Um, he hears the voice of God for the first time, and God calls him. The first thing he's supposed to do is tell uh, Eli, the priest, that he and his sons are going to be judged, uh, and their line will be cut off from priestly office. And now, for the next few chapters, Samuel's going to disappear, because uh, we're going to look at that happening, that God fulfilling his word of judgment to Eli and his family and all of Israel. So we're going to, again, we're going to read this whole chapter, um, starting uh, right at the beginning of chapter 4, and it'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible that you'd like to look at. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. 
where they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there also has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. She named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured because of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Pray with me. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you have spoken to your word to us from ages past. Yet even today, we, your people who hear it so many years later, can be sure that by the power of your present Holy Spirit, this word is speaking yet still to us. I pray, God, that our hearts would be soft, that our eyes would be opened, and we might see the glory of God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Philistines are our reoccurring villains in the story. This is not the last incident of Philistine villainy that we will see. These are these coastal peoples that Israel has not quite been able to take care of like they should, and will have ongoing battles with them throughout these books. And Israel comes into this confrontation with the Philistines, and they suffer defeat. And by suffering defeat, they kind of say, hey, listen, we're Israel. God's supposed to be with us. This is, this is our place. He gave it to us. 
Why could we lose? Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant here. Now, if you don't know what the Ark of the Covenant is, it's a, it's a, it's a box. It's a gold box, a very fancy gold box. And in it are these articles of the covenant that God has made with Israel. Um, so there's remnants of the ten, there's ten Commandments, there's pieces of manna, Aaron's staff is in there. And it's got this decorative image of cherubim, winged cherubim that face each other and their wings outstretched to each other. And, and from between these cherubim, it said, God speaks to Israel. So God doesn't live in this box. Israel doesn't believe that. They're not dumb. But this box, this testament of God's covenant with Israel is supposed to be this physical manifestation of God being with Israel. So they figure God should be on our team. We will bring the box here so that God will be on our team here and he will fight for us and we will win. Now, this is not a totally crazy idea, and they are not just making this up on the spot. This is actually a strategy that Israel has used before because God told them to do it. So I'm going to turn over to Joshua 6. Israel in the book of Joshua is moving into the land for the very first time. This is the very first time they are doing this thing where they are fighting the people that are occupying the land and they come to this what's basically a military fortification, this town, which is better understood as a fort of Jericho. And they are a people who have been enslaved for generations. They don't have a large army. They don't have good weapons. They are people who have just watched a generation of people die in the wilderness. They are not well equipped to be taking over military fortifications from a people who are bigger and better trained and better armed than them. So God tells them this strange strategy of how they're going to deal with this city of Jericho. In Joshua 6, he says, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. There it is. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets, and when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. <clears throat> Joshua follows the instructions. They take up the box, they do what God commands them to do. They march around once each day until the seventh day. They march around seven times. Jericho falls. Undermanned, under-equipped Israel walks in, and they win. They take over Jericho. So here's Israel some span of time later. They have this kind of cultural memory of what God has done in the past, and Maybe in a perfectly logical way, they say, let us bring the ark here and do this thing. And instead, a great reversal of Jericho happens. 
Instead of them taking a superior force, they, occup- they take upon themselves significant losses. And the people scatter. They run away. Not only that, not only have lots of people died, but this special representation of God's presence with His covenant people is gone. This, as much as anything that happens that day, is terrible, terrible news for Israel. The presence of God is what makes Israel at all a special or unique people. There's nothing significant about them except that God goes with them. And here in 1 Samuel 4, God is nowhere to be found. Now, Israel, the way they've acted, should be somewhat familiar to us. We can read this text, and we have for us a diagnosis of what is probably the most natural way to deal with God. And notice, too, that although the Philistines were scared about what Israel was about to do, they were not uh, blown away by the strategy. They were afraid that Israel's God would come and do something special, but they weren't that surprised that Israel would bring their gods into battle because people bring gods into battle. And this is what people, this is what you and I do all the time. We have battles for ourselves, in our own lives, in our culture, whatever. And our impulse is to figure out how to carry God into those circumstances and leverage for ourselves the result that we want. But when we do this, we treat God like He is some magical token. That He is just a thing to be carried in to get us what we want. I think we can all look around our, our place in time today and see pretty apparent and gross versions of this. Politicians from all over the spectrum love to trot Jesus into their camp and try to use Him to secure for themselves all kinds of victories. Not just today, but for 2,000 years it's happened. For goodness sakes, the, the American South trotted Jesus in to the cause of slavery. Surely God will be on our side if we say Jesus enough in a clever enough way. Now a lot of times we can sit back and say, okay, this is pretty gross. Like we kind of see what's going on here and it's pretty gross leveraging Jesus for political power. But the truth is, we, we do this in much smaller and quieter and subtler ways that are harder to detect and more pervasive. Can I give you maybe, I think, the most common way that, that Christians do this, that I do this, is when you read your Bible. When you and I read our Bibles... The temptation is we open the Bible, we read, let's say, a strange passage like 1 Samuel 4. And we say, what is this telling me that I need to do so that I will be a happier person or that God will be happier with me 
or that I can do a good thing and earn some sort of credit. Now, you, you may not put it in such blunt terms, but I, I, I hear this all the time. The question often comes out as, what does this have to do with me? And see, what we mean there is, Bible confrontation, encounter with God should be arranged around me and my life. The thing that this is all about is about me living my best life now, or whatever you want to call it. Surely what God most wants in the Bible in talking to me is for me to know what to do for me. And then when you use God like that, like a lever, when you use the Bible like a tool to try to crack open something that is hidden from you so that you can get what you want, the Bible becomes weird and very, very strange. That's why so many people have such a hard time reading the Bible because they come to the Bible trying to understand it in this way. How, what is this telling me about me and what I should do to get God to be happy with me so that I can live a happy life? Let me tell you what the Bible is trying to tell you. Nothing about you. Well, it says things about you and me. The Bible, though, is not about you and me. In fact, the very nature of our constant questioning, how is this about me, is the Bible trying to scream at you, this is not about you. It's making you uncomfortable and it feels so strange because our worldview is entirely wrapped around us getting and doing what we want. And here's the Bible saying, no, God is doing what God wants to do in the world and you should get on board with that. So this is not working for you because you are not listening to the Scriptures. You are not listening to God. And if you're like me, the most natural thing to come to the Bible is surely what God wants to do is talk about me. I want to talk about me. I think about me all the time. Surely God must be thinking about me all the time. And yet when we say it out loud, we can finally get the words out. Man, that is utter nonsense. God, the God, the infinite and holy and good God, around whom all things are swirling and sustained, He is spending His time most concerned with me. That is foolishness. And a lot of times what Scripture is trying to teach you is, my friend, you are a fool. Now, you, you are a beloved fool. God is not trying to fling you off into irrelevance. He's not saying He doesn't care about you. But the story is always about God. We use the Bible like Israel uses the Ark of the Covenant. We use God like Israel uses the Ark of the Covenant. How do I get God to do what I want and to bless me? 
So you see, Israel's quandary is much like ours. And if we don't have the body count that Israel does, that is not because we are better than Israel. That is because God has been exceedingly kind to us and not allowed us to get what we maybe most deserve. God will not be used as if he is a thing. God is a person. And he's not just a person. He is the person. He is the king. God does not take Israel's orders and march into battle and do what they like. Israel is meant to take God's orders and to march into battle his way. You know, this is, this is the central question and misunderstanding when Jesus comes into the story in the Gospels. What, what the people of Israel and Jesus' day, many hundreds of years later, most want to do is to use Jesus to get what they want. You need to kick these sorry Romans out of here and establish Israel on top of the heap. That's what we want. And Jesus does this annoying thing where he won't even let them put the crown on his head. See, oftentimes we can clothe our misappropriation in God, of God in terms of worship. And what we really mean is not to worship God or enthrone God. We want to use Him to do what we want to do. And so when God does what Jesus does and He passes through the crowd and refuses the crown, we get really angry with Him. We get distraught. We wonder where He is and why things are not working quite like we expected. Eli <clears throat> is waiting for news of this battle. His sons are there, and apparently, most importantly to him, the ark of God is there, and he's concerned. And Eli is old and blind and apparently fat. And Eli is doing exactly what your parents and mine have told us to do our whole lives, sitting back in their chair and rocking on the back legs. Don't do that. You're going to fall and break your neck. That's biblical. I didn't believe my parents when they told me for, you know, whatever, 18 years. You can ask them. They're here. And now I watch my own kids. And I tell them the same thing. You're falling and break your neck. It's in the Bible. <laughs> Eli gets this news <clears throat> that his sons have died. And the Ark of the Covenant has gone. And this, this, text, this textual moment where it says that Eli was old and heavy. That's the word. It's not just this incidental crack at, a, at an old man. I mean, he's 98. We, don't, we ought to be making jokes about his weight. So why does it say that? That the Hebrew word for glory and the Hebrew word for weight are from the same root. The priest of Israel is meant to be the glory of Israel. Because they are the one who meets with God 
and offers atonement for the people and speaks the word of God to the people of God. They are meant to be the glory upon Israel's head. And instead, Eli is just this old man, blind, robbed of the Ark of the Covenant, who can't even manage his own sons. He is not the glory of Israel. He's just an old, dead, fat guy. And then there's this next little vignette. Eli's grandson is born as this news goes out. And what's the question? The mother who who bears this, this son named Ichabod, she brings back this word and says, where Where is the glory of God? It's probably a better translation rather than the glory of God has departed. It's it's maybe best to translate it as where is the glory of God? The The ark has been stolen. The priesthood has been crushed. Where is the glory? The glory is on its backside, dead. Where is the glory? This this question of where the glory is and how God is uh, operating and used in our life is actually very much in question from our call to worship. In Luke 4, Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. And what the temptations all revolve around are Satan speaking to Jesus and saying, won't you use your power or use this opportunity for ease to get what you want in the world? Won't you bend the knee to me so that I can give you what you want? See, this is the the question of temptation that comes to us all. Always around these avenues of getting what we want. And Jesus' response is to quote Deuteronomy 6. He said, you can only serve one person, the Lord your God. You cannot serve yourself or your appetites or any other authority or power. You cannot even use God to serve your own agenda. You must serve Him and Him only. When Jesus comes, this is not just the confession that he makes in Luke 4. This is the way that he lives his life. So that his life is a demonstration to us of constantly forfeiting his will to the will of the Father. When he teaches his disciples to pray, he teaches them to pray that God's will would be done in the world and not their own. When Jesus heals, when he teaches, at issue centrally is the will of God. And there is no tokenism, there is no machine at works where God is being used as a lever by Jesus to get what he wants. He is preaching the kingdom of God that has come where God is king and nobody else. And of course, John will tell us that the the glory of God is the central question of Jesus' life. It's a reoccurring theme in the Gospel of John. And he wants us to be able to see. There's all kinds of people in the Gospel of John who can't see, who do not see rightly, or sometimes they do see rightly. 
But Jesus says the glory of God will be on display when the Son of Man is lifted up. Where is the glory of God? The glory of God is the Son of God crucified on the cross. When Jesus is raised up on the cross, the ultimate picture of submission to the perfect will of God, the glory of God is unveiled for people to see. When that happens, Jesus establishes himself as the true glory of Israel because he is the right and true priest of Israel. He is showing the people the way, one, of living not in submission to our own wills and desires, but to the will of the good Father who wants to care for and love his people. So Jesus, for the glory of God, submits himself to death, even death on a cross. But if Jesus was just showing the way, it would be an impossible burden still. Because who can, in the face of temptation, being offered all that you desire, if you would just do what is necessary to get what you want to advance your own kingdom, who among us could rightly speak the words that Jesus spoke, that there is only one God and only Him must we serve? So Jesus dies not to just display what perfect submission looks like, but he dies because of and for you and I, who are the sons and daughters of Eli, who cannot help but seek our own pleasure, seek our own gain, seek our own cause. The glory of God is on the cross to show us what a glory-filled life is and for glory to invade this place. Because you and I are the rebellious sons and daughters of Israel who always and forever advance our own agenda using the name of God even and using the semblance of worship even to advance our own cause. Jesus is the glory of God come in to the people of Israel, come in to one of us. Where is the glory of God? The glory of God is here. The disciples of Jesus saw the glory of God and were profoundly disappointed. This cannot be the plan. This cannot be the plan. The cross, death of the king, that cannot be the plan. What changes everything for them is they see the resurrected Jesus. And all of a sudden the cross makes a whole new kind of sense that just a few days before they could not see. You and I, we must look at the cross. And the truth is, oftentimes, the way that God glorifies Himself is not what we want. 
of all the ways that God could have glorified himself. Why a bloody and painful death? Why like this? And you and I have many occasions in our life to look at the mutilated body of Jesus, the glory of God, and say, I don't want that kind of glory. I want the kind of glory where the ark rides in and everything is fine. I want the kind of glory where I win, not where I die. This this is the strange and beautiful way of Jesus. God uses the humble and the weak and the unforeseen to accomplish His will so that He might put Himself at the center of the story. He does not allow Israel to have any belief, ongoing belief, that their agenda matches up identically with the agenda of God. Jesus does not let the people of Israel believe that. And I can promise you, he will not let you believe that. Sometimes you will experience that in ways that make sense. You will see that your agenda does not line up with God's, and you can say, upon further reflection, that makes a lot of sense. I was a terrible person there. It's a good thing God is not like me. But other times things will happen and they just won't make sense. And you will never understand why God might choose to split open his glory like that. And I don't understand either. But the hope of God's glory in the world is not that everything will be all right when you and I get everything we want. The hope of God's glory in the world is Christ in you now and Christ reigning on this earth forever. The hope of glory is not you or me or our circumstances. The hope of glory is Jesus Christ revealed. So you may be caught up in the moment of figuring out how does this all make sense? Where is the glory of God? And you may not fully ever find that answer on this side of things. But this cross is a declaration to you and to me that God is about His business in the world. And in some strange way, It is finished. The glory of God is here. Where are you? What are you looking for? What have you been looking for all this time? Where have you put your hope? If you're a person who would say that you're a Christian, how have you even used the name of Jesus to try to bless your own agenda, your own method of warfare? 
this is the glory of God. This is what he's doing. If you're here and you don't call yourself a Christian, or you have for cultural appropriateness, but it means nothing to you, do you know that the life that you have pursued in and for yourself, all about yourself, is never going to fulfill you? The world was not meant to put you at the center. But God who glorifies himself does so that you might come close to him and find shelter under his arms. Will you lay aside the weapons of your warfare? Stop looking for the next magic token to get you what you want. And instead, find meaning in life with Jesus at the center of your life. God will glorify himself. And it will look much like this. To the great relief and gladness of his people. Jesus Christ has been and will be glorified forever. Forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray for you. <clears throat> Jesus, our great high priest, you have brought the glory of God close to us. You've brought the glory of God to our neighborhood. You have took on flesh. God, I pray that you would help us, that you would give us a spirit of repentance, that you would put your finger gently on our hearts and show us how we have tried to use you for our own gain. We have tried to use you like a thing. And God, I pray that your kindness would be on display to us that your glory is richer and truer and better and more beautiful than we could have hoped for. God, I pray that we, your people, would turn aside from being like the people of Israel. And we thank you, Jesus, that you were the faithful priest for us, that you forever submitted yourself to the will of the Father that you lived on this earth the life that we could not live. And in your infinite goodness and perfection, you have more than enough for us. Lord Jesus, would you comfort us when we are confused, when we suffer, when we have lost sight of the glory of God? Would you return our eyes to the cross and lift yourself up. Restore sight to these cloudy eyes. And help us see where glory is. Do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. To the glory of God. To the praise of Jesus. Amen.